chapter 4, Rembrandt and the Elder Son. During my hours in the hermitage, quietly looking at the prodigal son, I never for a moment questioned that the man standing at the right of the platform on which the father embraces his returned son was the elder son. The way he stands there looking at the great gesture of welcome leaves no room for doubt as to whom Rembrandt wanted to portray. I made many notes describing the stern-looking, distant observer and saw there everything Jesus tells us about the elder son. Still, the parable makes it clear that the elder son is not yet home when the father embraces his lost son and shows him his mercy. To the contrary, the story shows that when the elder son finally returns from his work, the welcome home party for his brother is already in full swing. I'm surprised at how easily I missed the discrepancy between Rembrandt's painting and the parable and simply took it for granted that Rembrandt wanted to paint both brothers in his portrayal of the prodigal son. When I returned home and began to read all the historical studies of the painting, I quickly realized that many critics were much less sure than I as to the identity of the man standing at the right. Some described him as an old man, and some even questioned whether Rembrandt himself had painted him. But then one day, more than a year after my visit to the Hermitage, a friend, Ivan Dyer, with whom I had often discussed my interest in the prodigal painting, sent me a copy of Barbara Joan Hager's The Religious Significance of Rembrandt's Return of the Prodigal Son. This brilliant study, which puts the painting into the context of the visual and iconographic tradition of Rembrandt's time, brought the elder son back into the picture. Hager shows that in the biblical commentaries and paintings of Rembrandt's time, the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector and the parable of the prodigal son were closely linked. Rembrandt follows that tradition. The seated man beating his breast and looking at the returning son is a steward representing the sinners and tax collectors, while the standing man looking at the father in a somewhat enigmatic way is the elder son, representing the Pharisees and scribes. By putting the elder son in the painting as the most prominent witness, however, Rembrandt goes not only beyond the literal text of the parable, but also beyond the painting tradition of his time. Thus, Rembrandt holds on, as Hager says, not to the letter, but to the spirit of the biblical text. Barbara Hager's findings are much more than a happy affirmation of my earliest intuition. They help me to see the return of the prodigal son as a work that summarizes the great spiritual battle and the great choices this battle demands. By painting not only the younger son in the arms of his father, but also the elder son, who can still choose for or against the love that is offered to him, Rembrandt presents me with the inner drama of the soul, him as well as my own. Just as the parable of the prodigal son encapsulates the core message of the gospel and calls the listeners to make their own choices in face of it, so too does Rembrandt's painting sum up his own spiritual struggle and invite his viewers to make a personal decision about their lives. Thus, Rembrandt's bystanders make his painting a work that engages the viewer in a very personal way. In the fall of 1983, when I first saw the poster showing the central part of the painting, I immediately felt that I was personally called to something. Now that I am better acquainted with the whole painting, and especially with the meaning of the prominent witness on the right, I am more than ever convinced of what an enormous spiritual challenge this painting represents. Looking at the younger son and reflecting, reflecting on Rembrandt's life, it became quite apparent to me that Rembrandt must have understood him in a personal way. When he painted The Return of the Prodigal Son, he had lived a life marked by great self-confidence, success, and fame followed by many painful losses, disappointments, and failures. Through it all, he had moved from the exterior light to the interior light, from the portrayal of external events to the portrayal of the inner meanings, from a life full of things and people to a life more marked by solitude and silence. With age, he grew more interior and still. It was a spiritual homecoming. 
But the elder son is also part of Rembrandt's life experience. And many modern biographers are, in fact, critical of the romantic vision of his life. They stress that Rembrandt was much more subject to the demands of his sponsors and his need for money than it is generally believed, that his subjects are often more the result of the prevailing fashions of his time than of his spiritual vision, and that of his failures have as much to do with his self-righteous and obnoxious character as with the lack of appreciation on part of his milieu. Different new biographies see in Rembrandt more a selfish, calculating manipulator than a searcher for spiritual truth. They contend that many of his paintings, brilliant as they are, are much less spiritual than they seem. My initial reaction to these demythologizing studies of Rembrandt was one of shock, in particular the biography by Gary Schwartz, which leaves little room for romanticizing Rembrandt, made me wonder if anything like a conversion had ever taken place. It is quite clear from the many recent studies of Rembrandt's relationships with his patrons, those who ordered and bought his work, as well as with his family and friends, that he was a very difficult person to get along with. Schwartz describes him as a bitter, revengeful person who used all permissible and impermissible weapons to attack those who came in his way. Indeed, Rembrandt was known to act often selfishly, arrogantly, and even vengefully. This is most vividly shown in the way he treated Gertrude Dricks, with whom he had living with whom he had been living for six years. He used Gertrude's brother, who had been given the power of attorney by Gertrude herself, to collect testimony from neighbors against her so that she could be sent away to an insane asylum. The outcome was Gertrude's confinement in a mental institution. When the possibility later arose that she would be released, Rembrandt hired an agent to collect evidence against her to make certain that she stay locked up. During the year 1649, when these tragic events began to happen, Rembrandt was so consumed by them that he produced no work. At this point, another Rembrandt emerges, a man lost in bitterness and desire for revenge and capable of betrayal. This Rembrandt is hard to face. It is not so difficult to sympathize with a lustful character who indulges in the hedonistic pleasures of the world, then repents, returns home, and becomes a spiritual person. But appreciating a man with deep resentments, wasting much of his precious time in rather petty court cases, and constantly alienating people by his arrogant behavior, is much harder to do. Yet, to the best of my knowledge, that too was part of his life, a part I could not ignore. Rembrandt is as much the elder son of the parable as he is the younger. When, during the last years of his life, he painted both sons in his return to the prodigal son, he lived a life in which neither the lostness of the younger son nor the lostness of the elder son was alien to him. Both needed healing and forgiveness. Both needed to come home. Both needed the embrace of a forgiving father. But from the story itself, as well as from Rembrandt's painting, it is clear that the hardest conversion to go through is the conversion of the one who stayed home. Chapter 5. The Elder Son Leaves During the hours I spent in the hermitage looking at Rembrandt's painting, I became increasingly fascinated by the figure of the Elder Son. I recall gazing at him for long periods and wondering what was going on in this man's mind and heart. He is, without any doubt, the main observer at the Younger Son's homecoming. At the time, when I was familiar only with the detail of the painting in which the father embraces his returning son, it was rather easy to, preserve it, to perceive it as an inviting, moving, and reassuring. But when I saw the whole painting, I quickly realized the complexity of the reunion. The main observer, watching the father embracing his returning son, appears very withdrawn. He looks at the father, but not with joy. He does not reach out, nor does he smile or express welcome. He simply stands there, at the side of the platform, apparently not eager to come higher up. It is true that the return is the central event of the painting. However, it is not situated at the physical center of the canvas. It takes place at the left side of the painting, while the tall, stern elder son dominates the right side. 
There's a large open space separating the father and his elder son, a space that creates a tension asking for resolution. With the elder son in the painting, it is no longer possible for me to sentimentalize the return. The main observer is keeping his distance, seemingly unwilling to participate in the father's welcome. What is going on inside this man? What will he do? Will he come closer and embrace his brother as his father did? Or will he walk away in anger and disgust? Ever since my friend Bart remarked that I may be much more like the elder brother than the younger, I have observed this man at the right with more attentiveness and have seen many new and hard things. The way in which the elder son has been painted by Rembrandt shows him to be very much like his father. Both are bearded and wear large red cloaks over their shoulders. These externals suggest that he and his father have much in common, and this commonality is underlined by the light on the elder son, which connects his face in a very direct way with the luminous face of his father. But what a painful difference between the two. The father bends over his returning son. The elder stands stiffly erect, a posture accentuated by the long staff reaching from his hand to the floor. The father's mantle is wide and welcoming. The son's hangs flat over his body. The father's hands are spread out and touch the homecoming in a gesture of blessing. The sons are clasped together and held close to his chest. There's light on both faces, but the light from the father's face flows through his whole body, especially his hands, and engulfs the younger son in a great halo of luminous warmth. Whereas the light on the face of the elder son is cold and constricted, his figure remains in the dark and his clasped hands remain in the shadows. The parable that Rembrandt painted might well be called the parable of the lost sons. Not only did the younger son who left home to look for freedom and happiness in a distant country get lost, but the one who stayed home also became a lost man. Exteriorly, he did all the things a good son is supposed to do. But interiorly, he wandered away from his father. He did his duty, worked hard every day, and fulfilled all his obligations, but became increasingly unhappy and unfree. It is hard for me to concede that this bitter, resentful, angry man might be closer to me in a spiritual way than the lustful younger brother. Yet the more I think about the elder son, the more I recognize myself in him. As the eldest son of my own family, I know well what it feels like to have to be a model son. I often wonder if it is not especially the elder sons who want to live up to the expectations of their parents and be considered obedient and dutiful. They often want to please. They often fear being a disappointment to their parents. But they often experience, quite early in life, a certain envy toward their younger brothers and sisters, who seem to be less concerned about pleasing and much freer in doing their own thing. For me, that was certainly the case. And all my life, I've harbored a strange curiosity for the disobedient life that I myself didn't dare to live, but which I saw being lived by many around me. I did all the proper things, mostly complying with the agendas set by the most parental figures in my life, teachers, spiritual directors, bishops, and popes. But at the same time, I often wondered why I didn't have the courage to run away as the younger son did. It's strange to say this, but deep in my heart, I have known the feeling of envy toward the wayward son. It is the emotion that arises when I see my friends having a good time doing all sorts of things that I condemn. I call their behavior reprehensible or even immoral, but at the same time, I often wondered why I didn't have the nerve to do some of it or all of it myself. The obedient and dutiful life of which I am proud or for which I am praised feels sometimes like a burden that was laid on my shoulders and continues to oppress me, even when I've accepted it to such a degree that I cannot throw it off. I have no difficulty identifying with the elder son of the parable who complained, all these years I've slaved for you and never once disobeyed any orders of yours. Yet you've never offered me so much as a kid for me to celebrate with my friends. In this complaint, obedience and duty have become a burden and service has become slavery. 
All of this became very real for me when a friend who had recently become a Christian criticized me for not being very prayerful. This criticism made me very angry. I said to myself, how dare he teach me a lesson about prayer? For years he has lived a carefree and undisciplined life, while I have since childhood scrupulously lived the life of faith. Now he is converted and starts telling me how to behave? This inner resentment reveals to me my own lostness. I had stayed home and didn't wander off, but I had not yet lived a free life in my father's house. My anger and envy showed me my bondage. This is not something unique to me. There are many elder sons and elder daughters who, have who are lost while still at home. And it is this lostness characterized by judgment and condemnation, anger and resentment, bitterness and jealousy, that is so pernicious and so damaging to the human heart. Often we think about lostness in terms that are quite visible, even spectacular. The younger son sinned in a way we can easily identify. His lostness is quite obvious. He misused his money, his time, his friends, his own body. What he did was wrong. Not only his family and friends knew it, but he himself as well. He rebelled against morality and allowed himself to be swept away by his own lust and greed. There's something very clear cut about his misbehavior. Then having seen all his wayward behavior led to nothing but misery. The younger son came to his senses, turned around and asked for forgiveness. We have here a classical human failure with a straightforward resolution, quite easy to understand and sympathize with. The lostness of the elder son, however, is much harder to identify. After all, he did all the right things. He was obedient, dutiful, law-abiding, and hardworking. People respected him, admired him, praised him, and, and likely considered him a model son. Outwardly, the elder son was faultless. But when confronted by his father's joy at the return of his younger brother, a dark power erupts in him and boils to the surface. Suddenly there becomes glaringly visible a resentful, proud, unkind, selfish person, one who had remained deeply hidden, even though it had been growing stronger and more powerful over the years. Deeply looking into myself and then around me at the lives of other people, I wonder which does more damage, lust or resentment. There's so much resentment among the just and the righteous. There's so much judgment, condemnation, and prejudice among the saints. There's so much frozen anger among the people who are so concerned about avoiding sin. The lostness of the resentful saint is so hard to reach precisely because it is so closely wedded to the desire to be good and virtuous. I know from my own life how diligently I have tried to be good, acceptable, likable, and a worthy example for others. There was always the conscious effort to avoid the pitfalls of sin and the constant fear of giving into temptation. But with all of that, there came a seriousness, a moralistic intensity, and even a touch of fanaticism that made it increasingly difficult to feel at home in my father's house. I became less free, less spontaneous, less playful, and others came to see me more and more as a somewhat heavy person. When I listened carefully to the words with which the elder son attacks his father, self-righteous, self-pitying, jealous words, I hear a deeper complaint. It is the complaint that comes from a heart that feels it never received what it was due. It is the complaint expressed in countless subtle and not so subtle ways, forming a bedrock of human resentment. It is the complaint that cries out, I tried so hard, worked so long, did so much, and still I have not received what others get so easily. Why do people not thank me, not invite me, not play with me, not honor me, while they pay so much attention to those who take life so easily and so casually? It is in this spoken or unspoken complaint that I recognize the elder son in me. Often I catch myself complaining about little rejections, little impoliteness, little negligences. Time and time again, I discover within me that murmuring, whining, grumbling, lamenting, 
and griping that go on and on, even against my will. The more I dwell on the matters in question, the worse my state becomes. The more I analyze it, the more reason I see for complaint. And the more deeply I enter it, the more complicated it gets. There is an enormous dark drawing power to this inner complaint. Condemnation of others and self-condemnation, self-righteousness and self-rejection keep reinforcing each other in a way more, in an ever more vicious way. Every time I allow myself to be seduced by it, it spins me down in an endless spiral of self-rejection. As I let myself get drawn into the vast interior labyrinth of my complaints, I become more and more lost until, in the end, I feel myself to be the most understood, rejected, neglected, and despised person in the world. Of one thing I am sure, complaining is self-perpetuating and counterproductive. Whenever I express my complaints in the hope of evoking pity and receiving the satisfaction I so desire, the result is often the opposite of what I try to get. A complainer is hard to live with, and very few people know how to respond to the complaints made by a self-rejecting person. The tragedy is that often the complaint, once expressed, leads to that which is most feared, further rejection. From this perspective, the elder son's inability to share in the joy of his father becomes quite understandable. When he came home from the fields, he heard music and dancing. He knew there was joy in the household. Immediately, he became suspicious. Once the self-rejecting complaint has formed in us, we lose our spontaneity to the extent that even joy can no longer evoke joy in us. The story says, calling one of the servants, he asked what it was all about. There is the, feel, there is the fear that I am excluded again, that someone didn't tell me what was going on, that I was kept out of things. The complaint resurges immediately. Why was I not informed? What is this all about? The unsuspecting servant, full of excitement and eager to share the good news, explain, explains, your brother has come and your father has killed the calf we had been fattening because he, is not, he got him back safe and sound. But this shout of joy cannot be received. Instead of relief and gratitude, the servant's joy sum, summons up the opposite. He was angry then and refused to go in. Joy and resentment cannot coexist. The music and dancing, instead of inviting to joy, became a cause for even greater withdrawal. I have very vivid memories of a similar situation. Once, when I felt quite lonely, I asked a friend to go out with me. Although he replied that he didn't have time, I found him just a little later in a mutual friend's house where a party was going on. Seeing me, he said, welcome, join us, good to see you. But my anger was so great at not being told about the party that I couldn't stay. All of my inner complaints about not being accepted, liked, and loved surged up in me, and I left the room, slamming the door behind me. I was completely incapacitated, unable to receive and participate in the joy that was there. In an instant, the joy of that room had become a source of resentment. This experience of not being able to enter into joy is the experience of a resentful heart. The other son couldn't enter into the house and share in his father's joy. His inner complaint paralyzed him and let the darkness engulf him. Rembrandt sensed the deepest meaning of, of this when he painted the elder son at the side of the platform where the younger son is received in the father's joy. He didn't depict the celebration with its musicians and dancers. They were merely the external signs of the father's joy. The only sign of a party is the relief of a seated flute player carved into the wall against which one of the women, the prodigal's mother, leans. In place of the party, Rembrandt painted light, the radiant light that envelops both father and son. The joy that Rembrandt portrays is the still joy that belongs to God's house. In the story, one can imagine the elder son standing outside in the dark, not wanting to enter the lighted house filled with happy noises. But Rembrandt paints neither the house nor the fields. He portrays it all with darkness and light. 
The father's embrace full of light is God's house. All the music and dancing are there. The other son stands outside the circle of this love, refusing to enter. The light on his face makes it clear that he too is called to the light, but he cannot be forced. Sometimes people wonder, whatever happened to the elder son? Did he let himself be persuaded by his father? Did he finally enter into the house and participate in the celebration? Did he embrace his brother and welcome him home as his father had done? Did he sit down with the father and his brother at the same table and enjoy with them the festive meal? Neither Rembrandt's painting nor the parable it portrays tells us about the elder son's final willingness to let himself be found. Is the elder son willing to confess that he too is a sinner in need of forgiveness? Is he willing to acknowledge that he is not better than his brother? I'm left alone with these questions. Just as I do not know how the younger son accepted the celebration or how he lived with his father after his return, I also do not know whether the elder son ever reconciled himself with his brother, his father, or himself. What I do know with unwavering certainty is the heart of the father. It is a heart of limitless mercy. Unlike a fairy tale, the parable provides no happy ending. Instead, it leaves us face to face with one of life's hardest spiritual choices, to trust or not to trust in God's all-forgiving love. I myself am the only one who can make that choice. In response to their complaint, this man welcomes sinners and eats with them. Jesus confronted the Pharisees and scribes, not only with the return of the prodigal son, but also with the resentful old elder son. It must have come as a shock to those dutiful religious people. They finally had to face their own complaint and choose how they would respond to God's love for sinners. Would they be willing to join them at the table as Jesus did? It was and still is a real challenge for them, for me, for every human being who is caught in resentment and tempted to settle on a contemplative or complaintive way of life. The more I reflect on the elder son in me, the more I realize how deeply rooted this form of lostness really is and how hard it is to return home from there. Returning home from a lustful escapade seems so much easier than returning home from a cold anger that has rooted itself in the deepest corners of my being. My resentment is not something that can be easily distinguished and dealt with rationally. It is far more pernicious, something that has attached itself to the underside of my virtue. Isn't it good to be obedient, dutiful, law-abiding, hardworking, and self-sacrificing? And still, it seems that my resentment and complaints are mysteriously tied to such praiseworthy attitudes. This connection often makes me despair. At the very moment I want to speak or act out of the most generous self, I get caught in anger or resentment. It seems that just as I wanted to be most selfless, I find myself obsessed about being loved. Just when I do my utmost to accomplish a task well, I find myself questioning why others do not give themselves as I do. Just when I think I am capable of overcoming temptations, I feel envy toward those who give in to theirs. It seems that whenever my virtuous self is, there also is the resentful complainer. Here, I am faced with my own true poverty. I am truly unable to root out my resentments. They are so deeply anchored in the, in the soil of my inner self that pulling them out seems like self-destruction. How to weed out these resentments without uprooting the virtues as well? Can the elder son in me come home? Can I be found as the younger son was found? How can I return when I am lost in resentment, when I am caught in jealousy, when I am imprisoned in obedience and duty lived out as slavery? It is clear that alone, by myself, I cannot find myself. More daunting than healing myself as the younger son is healing myself as the elder son. Confronted here with the impossibility of self-redemption, I now understand Jesus' words to Nicodemus. Do not be surprised when I say, you must be born from above. Indeed, something has to happen that I myself cannot cause to happen. I cannot be reborn from below, that is, with my own strength, with my own mind, with my own psychological insights. 
There's no doubt in my mind about this because I have tried so hard in the past to heal myself from my complaints and failed and failed and failed until I come to the edge of complete emotional collapse and even physical exhaustion. I can only be healed from above, from where God reaches down. What is impossible for me is possible for God. With God, everything is possible.